Hello and welcome to the AV Forums podcast for the 5th of November 2014 and joining me on this edition are Assistant Editor Steve Withers. I'm merely remarking upon the paradox of asking a masked man who he is. Games Editor Mark Buttright. Can you prove any of this? And audio reviewer Ed Selly. Beneath this mask there is an idea Mr Creedy and ideas are bulletproof. Remember, remember the 5th of November. Gunpowder plot, the whole shebang. Ed, you're a resident history expert when it comes to uh, this kind of thing. Give us the, the lowdown on what actually happened on the 5th of November. Um, well, in many regards, it was a little bit anticlimactic. Uh, Mr. <laughs> Guido Fawkes and his uh, merry band of uh, committed uh, uh, Catholics were a little bit upset at just how depressingly Protestant it all was in Parliament. Um, so he... It's it's never in, in truly been decided whether he was the ringleader or not, but he was the poor sod caught with many barrels of gunpowder underneath the Houses of Parliament. Um, and let's face it, possession is nine-tenths of the law in these circumstances. Um, so effectively, to celebrate not blowing stuff up, we blow stuff up. Um, and uh, if you are of a, um, a sort of bored persuasion, you can have a look at the uh, example, the printed example of uh, Fawkes' signature before he went to the Tower of London and the signature uh, when he signed his confession. And it suggests that they, they, they weren't being, they, they, it wasn't exactly just, just doing the waterboarding there. I think they were going for something altogether. <laughs> there was a, a cheeky bit of coercion, I think. Yeah. Um, of course, uh, as I say, we find ourselves a couple of hundred years down the pipe and uh, I, I think we're right for someone to try again. I mean, I'm aware that GCHQ have now dispatched a van in my general direction for saying that. But, essentially the the 600 odd arseholes in there don't give a shit about you and frankly it would be worth reminding them that they work for you and not the other way around but uh, yeah. right so should we go on with the podcast then <laughs> topical right. news there yeah uh-huh. <laughs> should we just get ed going on the nature <laughs> of the first past the post system when there's more than two political parties <laughs> no, no 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 just leave it be i'm I, I, I say it remember i can only consume 600 calories today you don't want me to burn off too much energy i'll just pass out at the computer oh that's why you're in a bad mood i'm always in a bad mood but i'm in an especially bad mood on monday and wednesdays at the moment find a segue from that <laughs> mark tell us about the wonderful prizes we can win you can win and i know all this because i i set all this stuff up um, Guardians of the Galaxy 3D Blu-ray. Um, we've also got the NVIDIA Shield gaming tablet, which you will all know that Greg Hook reviewed. And obviously, he recommended it thoroughly. And the Battlestar Galactica Blu-ray box set. And how can people win these? They can join a competition, Phil. <laughs> and where is the competition? It's at avforums.com uh, forward slash competitions. Competitions? competitions? Is, that, is that a guess? No, no, competitions. Inflection was downwards there. Good prize, though. Guys of Galaxy is great film. Really enjoyed that at cinema. can't believe it's out so quickly. And yeah, to, uh, uh, good yeah, prize. Yeah, and, and to win it, all you need to do is, is tell us what score uh, Cars gave the film. So nice and easy. Just so even if you don't read his review, you've got a 1 in 10 chance of being right anyway. Yeah, exactly. Cool. So it, it doesn't actually discriminate against the, the illiterate. That's, that's nice. I like that. And then you've got the N- NVIDIA Shield tablet competition, uh, which Mark did mention there, and uh, that Greg uh, did uh, yeah. review and give quite a good review. And and to win that, all you need to do is tell us what the operating system is on the uh, on the NVIDIA Shield tablet. Um, is it Android Jelly Bean, Android Cupcake, Android Kit Kat, or Android Lollipop? 
Android and their stupid names for the <laughs> operating, <laughs> latest versions of their operating system. And again, that competition ends on the 17th of November. And uh, finally, now that Mark has the uh, the format of what we're actually doing here, you can tell us all about Battlestar Galactica. How and where there. Let me just type in avforums.com. <laughs> oh, there. Ah, right. Yes. No, I'm on the ball. The question is, what score did AV Forums reviewer Simon Crust give this TV series? And you've actually given a multiple choice one there. So you've got a one in four one, chance. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, or nine or ten. No, it's seven, eight, nine, and ten. Oh, right. Yeah, one in four chance. And or uh, just look up, look up the review and find out what the answer is. <laughs> yeah, I never catch on. Uh, yeah. That, that or create four separate accounts. <laughs> Don't tell me. Cover your bets. <laughs> uh well, they could do that, but this competition is exclusively open to whom? To... Hang on, let me get my glasses. Absorbs. <laughs> well, it's hard to wear glasses and headphones at the same time. It's exclusively... Oh, oh to members, active members, and well-known members of AV Forums. <laughs> okay, so that's it. Uh, the competitions that are available. <laughs> on the AV... sold them. <laughs> on AV Forums right now. Let's Let's... Kick on and do some uh, podcasting, uh, which is what we're here to do. And uh, it's been another quiet week, if you haven't already guessed. Um, but there is a new music streaming system. Uh, they're calling it uh, The Future. It's a high-res, lossless music streaming system, service even. And um, it's called Tidal. Ed, tell us all about it. Well, uh, you've covered most of the basics, uh, bar the uh, confusion which Tidal themselves have sown, or at least allowed a PR company to sow. Uh, Tidal is not high-res, as I understand it. High-res is greater than CD resolution. Tidal is essentially CD resolution. And that's, to be clear, that's no bad thing. Um, You can get some perfectly impressive results out of 1644, and that is what you get for £20 a month, there are 25 million tracks. Um, I don't quite know how, how one goes about establishing that. I mean, obviously, that would be quite a playlist to plough through. Um, but effectively, if you have either uh, a browser, but it has to be Chrome at the moment, but obviously that runs on Mac or PC, uh, an iOS device or an Android device, uh, you can access the Tidal streaming service. And... Anyone who has been using the Spotify app over recent years will find nothing that uh, that sets the cat amongst the pigeons or is in any way alarming. It's all entirely familiar. The only difference is that, uh, effectively, it is the same as either ordering the CD on Amazon or, you know, taking a trip back through time and going to HMV or, you know, however you've procured CDs up until now. Um I don't want to, you know, spoil too much before I, I actually try and make a review out of this. But um, as you might expect, it sounds better than Spotify. And to quantify that, it's uh, a little bit smoother when you're playing it on big and revealing loudspeakers. There's just a, a, a slight, you know, a, a useful sense of there being more information presence. There's just a more natural performance. Things like cymbals, um, high voices and so on and so forth simply sound a little less ragged. And there's a lot to like. Um, The more interesting bit, which I'll I'll save for the actual copy, is what happens when you compare uh, an album on Tidal to something which you've lovingly ripped yourself 
from CD using bespoke software. That's that's a more interesting one, and that's really where you have to judge up uh, Tidal's argument that you need never buy a CD again. So I hope um, my son and all sorts of other exciting things permitting to actually get that 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 one done reasonably quickly, um, uh, which means not not you know probably first half of the month rather than the last couple of days so you know watch this space see how we get on um and obviously please feel free to, to try it yourself as well as it being a 20 pound a month of subscription i believe there are certain ways and means of, of organizing a, a quick trial to see what you think um and just approach it with an open mind see what you see see how see how you go and and you know you know sorry i've completely sort of turned into a football pundit um it's (laughs) it's essentially as i say if you've been using spotify you won't find anything alarming or or particularly different so what have you got to lose uh, other than the potentially about 15 quid a month month. yeah so well i mean don't forget for new members spotify um premium if it's on both mobile device and desktop devices up to 12 quid or so now anyway so the gap is closing uh, so yeah, see what see what you think. Twenty pound a month, I'm out. Well, the nature of it, it's always going to be more specialised, isn't it? Which is going to, and also in terms of royalties, Spotify is able to argue with a compressed service, as are some of the other compressed services, that you get limited um, limited royalties from that, but a percentage of people will pop out and then actually buy. Uh, a physical copy with the, the the attendant royalties that go with that. Tidal can't really argue that if you're happy enough with how it sounds on Tidal, it's you know I don't it, it there it is for most people there wouldn't be enough of a jump to buy it on on physical media. So realistically, they are going to have to pay artists more, and that is, is going to cost more. I was just going to say, is there any kind of potential ramification there where say artists might take uh, the music from Spotify? And, and kind of put it only on that one service if they were potentially going to make more from that? You know, it's been interesting. I've been looking for an example of that being the case. At the moment, I know it, it's uh, the case that Spotify has certain things that Tidal doesn't. But I could see that being potentially an argument. But what I don't know at the moment is whether Tidal is actually paying out in, in, in bed. I mean, I don't think they can be paying any worse than Spotify. I need to make that abundantly clear. I mean, there was one instance where Lady Gaga managed to get, I think, $19 for 4 million plays of a song. So uh, <laughs> Spotify, Spotify is not the path to uh, to, to, to wealth. <laughs> so it, I, w- w- it will be interesting to see. But the business model has to be different because Tidal can't promise that anyone other than lunatics like me, who then might go out and buy it on vinyl, are going to, you're going to see much in the way of physical sales because you are offering them the finished article i've got to say how did title justify charging 1999 us dollars in the states and 1999 quid here when by my reckoning on the current exchange rate it's about equivalent 12 pound 50 i mean there's no physical you know it's not that they can claim their shipping disc they've got to make something or the exchange rate risks i mean you know it's a virtual service so uh, I, it's just the magic magic dollar pound parity that happens under these circumstances uh, I do to an extent agree I, I, I suspect given that they are uh, it's a Scandinavian organisation and actually the Scandinavians are not, are not traditionally the worst offenders in this regard I suspect that there may be some pointless level of bureaucracy that we are that, that, that is affecting this final decision somewhere uh, alternatively 
um, we may be that we're already in. We're just on on parity pricing with Europe, and uh, an altogether more aggressive policy has been adopted for, for for North America. But that's just me guessing, which I'm good at. It does seem strange that certain kind of online services do follow the the pound to dollar ratio, whereas you would assume a certain amount of you know they're not dealing with the kind of logistics of shipping boxes and the like, in the same way that you know, say a video games console can release in two different regions and we will usually get something at least knocked off. It won't be the same as just pound to dollars. Whereas things like downloadable content always seems to kind of follow pretty much the same rule, which is just, yeah, just change pounds to dollars. It might be slightly to do with taxation too. I mean, I guess our price includes VAT, which is 20%. Um, The US number may not include after when they have sales taxes, I don't know if that applies to. Uh, yeah, but uh, don't don't these huge companies just not bother paying tax in the UK? <clears throat> yep. Well, they're registered in won't on account of the fact that being based. I mean, and, and I don't think they'll be saving any money because they're based in Sweden, and I don't believe that they're particularly bargain on uh, on corporation <laughs> tax. If I'm honest, so um, I don't know if that's necessarily uh, necessarily too much. I mean, don't get me wrong. Companies do get it the other way around. Get it wrong as well. Didn't Apple charge? something stupid and it worked out that tracks cost a tenth of a penny or something particularly <laughs> stupid and that they, they lost sort of two million dollars in sales before they actually remembered that the yen is quite a high number of them to the dollar <laughs> well they, they gave away a u2 album and people still didn't want it so there you go. You can't yeah <laughs> and they've angered pink floyd who have just further accused you two of devaluing music i mean to be honest the, the act of them releasing an album devalues music but you know so um, um, am I the only one that thinks 20 quid on your bike? Oh, yeah, I wouldn't be bothering with it, no. But. Um, I don't know, you see. I have been playing about with it for a while. Obviously, my perception at the moment, because I've been given a, a free trial account, is, you know, positive. But nonetheless, having rigged up with some complexity a means of listening to the files exactly as they would otherwise be on my main streamer... Um. <sighs> Do you know what? There's a lot of times where I'd be looking at buying the download, the lossless download of certain albums, and for as long as I got Tidal, I wouldn't bother. And if I'm spending more than 20 quid a month, which more often than not I am, then yeah. But it comes down to the fact that we've had this conversation before. As as, as a group of people, Steve is the only one of us that still buys Blu-rays, and I'm, I think, the only one of us that actually buys music. Uh, I still so, buy um, CDs, Ed. I'll buy the odd CD. Well, there you go. You need to start working out how much you're spending and whether actually £20 a month is a saving. And I know that the argument is that at the moment that you stop paying, you don't have access to it. But, you know, as I say, I was working out, I've been paying for Spotify since August 2009. So, you know. So you're the person that's been keeping it going then? Well, yeah. But uh, uh, I may be switching. So we'll see how we go. Uh, right, Ed. So um, I used to listen on vinyl many, many, many moons ago. I got rid of my turntables a long time ago and all the rest. But I quite fancy getting back into it. So how do I go about it? How do I go about getting back into listening to vinyl from scratch? Right. The first thing you do is um, obviously this doesn't apply to you, Phil, because you're always sober, balanced, reasonable, and focused entirely on the job in hand. You need to work out: is this something I just want to dabble in? Um, or is it, do I want a piece of equipment commensurate with how else I've been listening to music up until this point? Because it's more expensive to buy something cheap, realise that actually that's not for you and you want to travel further up the, the food chain 
after about six weeks. So you have to sell the original stuff at a loss and then buy more items. So sit down, work out how much are you prepared to spend? Is this something you just simply want to experiment with, play about with, or whether you want to make a serious go of it? Having done so, uh, if you are looking at spending less than £500, realistically don't buy new. Go and have a look at um, the uh, plague on all of our houses that is eBay. Um, believe it or not, Gumtree can be surprisingly good for these sort of things. Have a look at buying a sensible used record player from stalwart organisations like Riga. Um, Projects obviously has been now selling for 15 years. Have a look at something which, you know, is normally being sold because someone's got the upgrade bug and they're buying themselves a bigger turntable. So you're buying something which is going to be well looked after. Um, and you can do that from £100. I wouldn't try and do it for less than that unless you are a little bit handy at making sure that you can fix bits that have gone wrong. And then, essentially, you've then got to start looking at media. The big thing is that you have to budget for, unless you are going to get given a, a relative's clutch of records or you've never got rid of your old ones, you have to budget from the start for media. It's not like anything else you own is going to play on this. So you can have a look in charity shops, but they uh, these days have been mined pretty much dry. My recommendation would be to have a look at websites like Discogs, which is an online marketplace for vinyl. It is uh, a global marketplace. It uses PayPal like eBay, uh, but there are other means means of paying as well. Um, The most cost-effective vinyl is material that was released before CD came along. So the only real way of buying it was vinyl or cassette. Uh, So that means there'll be more examples of it. Um, Generally speaking, it won't cost a lot of money. You can get a perfectly nice example of Michael Jackson's Thriller for six quid or so on and so forth. And then really start sort of tinkering from there. Um, And if you're a sane and sensible human being, you'll go, well, this is quite fun and occasionally buy sensible albums that were released before CD came along on it. Um, If you're a mentalist like me, you'll then just spend a fortune. Can I ask what your kind of shelving is like because it's the one thing that's always put me off vinyl which is it seems like everyone i've ever known who's been into vinyl has like a wall which seems like like a wall of insulation in their house (laughs) which is made of like industrial shelving well i use ikea um i can't remember the name but it begins with a k They, they they're little each individual square subsection so they can be built up in different shapes um it's worth bearing in mind that vinyl is a large frontal area, but they're actually as they're very thin. When you see someone with a wall of them, that's a, that's a lot of records and you know, a lot of weight. Yeah, it do, it is quite heavy, but the IKEA stuff is up to it. Um, the other thing is, um, if you're you know if you're arty about this, there's the uh, picture frame stowage for articles uh, for albums that you really like, so that keeps the album cover on display. Um, and, you know, as I say, if you're starting out, really, um, I, th- I think 40 quid's worth of IKEA box storage thing. I'll, I'll When this goes live, I'll have dug out the link for it. Um, they, 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 will work, they will work admirably. I mean, as I say, I've been doing this for quite a while and I've got half a wall. You know, so I don't get too too head up about it. Blu-rays are far more space-consuming unless you've been the packaging. I wonder how many people have been killed by vinyl. I don't know. It's quite. I mean, obviously, other than it falling on you, it's quite low voltage. 
so even when you're messing about with turntables, they very rarely kill you. I don't know. Well, I'm thinking, you know, um, killing zombies. Well, there is that, yeah. But I mean, I, I, I don't know. Obviously, things may be different up up near the uh, up near the wall where you are, but uh, I, they're not a big problem down here. I mean, occasionally you see them on Sunday night. Uh, sorry, the small hours of Sunday morning after a Saturday night. But I believe that if they're left alone with bed rest for a bit, they recover and, and, and become normal human <laughs> beings again. Right. So uh, very quickly, your five steps to becoming a vinyl junkie again are? Um, consider very carefully how much you want to spend on it. Uh, do some research. Um, by all means, I mean, if there is if there is interest in this, please do let us know in, in the feedback. And I'd be very happy to put together uh, a more... A more considered guide but just have a look at um what is the going rate uh or what is 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 going is for sale and the sort of prices that you're looking for um as i say up to about 500 pounds i would strongly advise you to look used turntables are exclusively mechanical um generally speaking even if they have gone wrong they are easy to fix and um then after that you then need to start looking around for music and as I say, I, again, I'd look online and used initially. Um, the main thing is just don't get suckered into buying stuff because you think it might be rare or it might go up in value. It's about listening. Choose your stuff carefully and, and just, just for, start, for starting off, in, enjoy it and try not to go mad. And one final question, belt drive or direct drive? Well, now, this is uh, you know something that's been fought with the same sort of... Um, uh, vigorous uh, the Middle East conflicts, but generally speaking, for sensibly priced budget decks, belt drive is 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 just going to be a little bit quieter, um, a little bit more well behaved. If you've got lots of money to throw at the problem, um, some of the seventies Japanese direct drives, uh, there's still plenty of parts for them, and they were built to survive the end of the world anyway. If someone offers me a Technics at SP10, not to be confused with the uh, the 1200s um, or SL um, uh, DJ decks or a Trio L7 or things like that, yeah, they are some of the finest record players ever built. And simply because they're 40 years old doesn't change anything. They're still amazing. I like the idea that one day maybe there'll be peace in the Middle East and then <laughs> war will flare up against, <laughs> again over vinyl technology. <laughs> What's that, Netanyahu? You're using a belt drive? You bastard. <laughs> we march tomorrow. <laughs> I think it's safe to say I have no interest in vinyl. Or I, going, I love going vinyl. Back to vinyl. I, think, I can totally see the appeal of it, actually. That kind of, you know, that, that tactile. I see the appeal. It was, it was a great line um, that Ed used in his piece about it, the, the Henry Rollins line about sitting alone in a room mm. with a CD as being lonely. <laughs> But with a with an LP, it, it's enjoying solitude. It's a great line, but the problem is digital technology has ruined my attention span. So, what the likelihood that digital technology has kind of ruined my attention span. So, like being able just to sit down and just listen to an album through, I I I can't do that. No, I genuinely I cannot do, do that. I couldn't sit in a room with no other stimuli other than just just music. You know, I'm always doing something else. I'd love to have an SL twelve ten, an original out of the box, fresh out of the box, uh, to sit on a shelf as as a piece of um, art, basically. I mean, don't get me wrong, Technics is the Technics are always for me. It's not so much the beauty of it; they always, you know, just they're almost absolute indestructibility as well. Well, you I mean, just look, just look at every other turntable other than the esoteric hi-fi stuff that that followed. It they all copied the Technics layout. 
in terms of home audio decks, the if you want the uh, the, the the base pattern, it, you know, you could possibly argue for Lin's LP12, but Springs are not a sort of universal fit. The base pattern is 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 Riga, the P2 and P3, yeah. and you get ultra mm. minimalist. It's plinth, platter, arm, no lights. Switch is normally on the underside of it. Literally, all, as minimalist as you can imagine. Um, that's you know certainly in the UK that that that's that's that that's the sort of home pattern. You know, like, like laser disc, it's it's one of these things where I wish I'd never sold, and I have <laughs> thousands and thousands of LPs, twelve inches, some of them really rare stuff like uh, Blue Monday. But for the very reason that I sold thousands of records, I ain't getting back into the hobby. Simple as that. I'd well, just be spending money on stuff that I'd already gotten rid of. And, you should um, do Laserdisc. I mean, that that, no. that would be much more you. And they're, they're, they're dirt cheap these days. It's a far cheaper part-time than uh, than, than vinyl. Yeah, like like I though, said, I would have... Records tw- sound good, but... Yeah, well, the, you know, Laserdisc is... Look shit. Long, yeah, it looks, looks shit. Yeah, it's, 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 it's only about the cover art and the hilarious machines. I, yeah, I, I, I yeah. will give you that. But I'd still have one in my rack. If, if, if I could find uh, an original, um, I think it was the one that you sold, Steve. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> I sold it to you. Yeah, if, if I would have it in the rack. It would never get switched on again or anything like that, but I would still have it in the rack because it was Which such a beautiful... Which one are you talking about? What? Um, uh, uh, the CLD-99. So the 99, it was the, yeah, the gold one. Uh, elite. It was the Pioneer Elite. Gloss black, wooden mm. edges. Oh, it was a gorgeous machine. Yeah, Let's face it, wooden side cheeks is where it's at. Yeah, yeah it was totally. really pretty. Yeah. I'd, I'd just have that sitting in the rack along with the, the, the 1210 that would never get switched on. It'd just be there for a piece of art, basically. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Oh, dear. Never mind. And remember, if you need help with any addictions, <laughs> <laughs> if anything in this podcast affected you, like the Samaritans, but more judgmental. <laughs> uh, right, so that was the Ask the Idiot. Uh, should you get back into vinyl? If you're that way inclined, I'm sure Ed's got plenty more advice for you. So uh, why not ask your questions underneath this podcast in the podcast forum? Well, somebody opens a bit of chocolate. I hope that's getting passed around. Uh, let's move on to upcoming reviews before we finish with hardware. And uh, Steve, what do we have coming up uh, in the next month because it is the beginning of november yeah for november i should be getting um hopefully later this week sony's vw300 4k native 4k projector which um you know is looking is knocking around the five grand price point so this is a, a real um i can't see a game changer i think as far as 4k projection goes i think that's starting to approach a realistic price for you know for projector fans that should be coming this week so i'm excited about that also, LG should be sending us in their latest OLED. This is full HD OLED TV, 55-inch curved screen for review. Um, it's basically the latest iteration of the one we reviewed this time last year. And again, uh, I'm looking forward to that because uh, I saw I saw their uh, OLED TVs quite recently at um, at, the, at their offices in Slough. And, uh, you know, OLED just looks fantastic. So I really it, want to get my hands on that really again. interesting that Samsung came out this week and said no OLED next year. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, they've been fairly consistent in, in in their view on OLED, haven't they? I mean, they said at the beginning of this year that they they thought it'd be another two or three years before they'd even be able to you know, get back into the OLED market. Which, so clear that they are not currently investing in OLED. Yeah, which which that that whole statement just says that, doesn't it? It just says yeah. we're conceding defeat at this moment in time. We yeah. won't be we won't be taking it on. Which maybe they're being smart. Maybe they're saying, let's see what happens to LG. You know, LG are taking a bit of a gamble. It might pay off handsomely, of course. But I guess if you if you don't want to, I mean, and also, 
Um, wasn't it? We were talking about this last week, not on the podcast, but just you and I were talking about Samsung um, posting some losses, weren't they, on the back of their uh, the mobile uh, division? Mobile division. Yeah. So clearly, even Samsung, even a giant like Samsung, you know, it hasn't got infinite amounts of money. And I'm, I'm sure that there's an awful lot of expense going into being put in by LG in terms of, you know, research into OLED. So, yeah, I, I guess they don't want to spend the money right the, now. The other thing is that, you know, LG Display are selling the OLED panels, and Samsung would yeah. never be seen dead buying their technology nope. <laughs> yes, but it's the one place they can't go yeah exactly but everybody else in the market can so it's going to be interesting to see how that one pans out it could be that samsung are left alone with nothing in the oled camp it could be quite interesting this next 12 months um the other thing that's coming up and um this is really interesting because we said we were not going to discuss this subject at all in this podcast there uh, but you're going to do a group test on atmos receivers steve yes i am um ed's uh, posted his review of the Yamaha RX A3040 last week. Uh, um, unfortunately, their upgrade for their software upgrade for Atmos hasn't happened yet, but it will be happening within the next week or two, hopefully. Um, I've got the A2040 in for review, but I've also got the Marantz SR7009 and the Pioneer um, LX58, both of which are already Atmos capable. And uh, hopefully, within the next couple of weeks, I'll also be getting in um, the Denon. Uh, X5 200, which by the time we get it for review, will also be upgraded for Aura. So that'll be Atmos and Aura. So, but yeah, I'm doing um, doing three AVRs right now. I'm up to my eyeballs and AVRs. How many of, times yeah. are you going to have to watch Transformers: Age of Extinction? Oh, well, Expendables comes out in a week or two. So oh, well, that makes it more, right? That, that makes it better, doesn't it? You, you've probably seen the uh, the trailer going around for seven, have you? FF7. Uh, yes, briefly had a look at it. Yeah. Steve? The trailer for what? Fast and Furious 7. Oh, oh yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I was, it or wasn't awesome. it Furious 7 play. now? Furious 7. Well, it was Furious 6, technically. <laughs> so this okay, is Furious fine. 7. But um, yes, uh, it looked awesome. <laughs> and I'm really, really looking forward to it. Apart from there's a slight twinge of sadness because of Paul Walker's untimely death. But uh, the fact that Kurt Russell's in the film just has made it possibly the greatest film of all time. So um, what can you say? The Rock versus Jason Statham. I saw sort of photographs of that earlier in the week published on Twitter. Um, you know, I mean, I'm I'm jizzing in anticipation. To be perfect. I have to say, Steve, I did find a T-shirt. I I, I, have, I can't. But, um, <laughs> I thought you were about to say I found a tissue. <laughs> I found a T-shirt uh, which just has. I, I will have to find it for you for Christmas. I think it simply says on the front, "You are my Rock, my Dwayne, my Johnson." <laughs> Oh, come on, you're telling me you don't want to see The Rock versus Jason Statham because I definitely do. I can't see, and uh, literally, you know, it's reading objectively, and I know realism hasn't been a strong part of the franchise up until now, no. but <laughs> unless Statham is armed and The Rock is not, I mean, you know, have you, Dwayne Johnson at the moment, is, he, is, he is the size of some, of some small cars. <laughs> there is no circumstances under which Jason Statham would not be sort of torn limb from limb. Yeah. But, uh, well, you know, anyway, I'm looking forward to it. It, looked, it did look great. I must admit, the trailer did look great. <laughs> Hopefully they found a way of working around um, Paul Walker's death, you know, and keeping the film um, coherent uh, and, it, and not being oh, too... Well, yeah, because coherence has been a big part of the franchise up until now. You don't want to end up like Gladiator, where it was so obviously not Oliver Reed. <laughs> well, we'll see. Yeah, that's not ideal. I'm assuming technology's been done a bit since then, but even so, using his brothers and this sort of stuff to get around his absence in some of the scenes is a bit worrying. But uh, I don't think if something's going to ruin the film, I don't think it will be that. <laughs> There's not going to be a death of one of the lead actors. Then. No. 
I take it you're not not quite so excited, Phil. About what? <laughs> Fast Furious Seven. Furious Seven. <laughs> no, I'm trying to get the the enthusiasm up to go and see Interstellar on Friday. I'm really looking forward to Interstellar. I mean, obviously, um, people who listen to this podcast, Cass's uh, uh, review went up at the weekend. He was lucky enough to see a pr- an advanced screening last Thursday. Um, he loves it. I, everything I've read, I've read some dif- differing opinions, but you know, uh, I think it was the Guardian who described it. You know, Armageddon was a fun space movie. This is more like watching a science report. But I'm, I'm, you know, that 2001 is one of my favourite films. You know, Apollo 13. I love a bit of realistic space action. They've got, it's got the reconnaissance in it, so what, what more could you want? I, I'm really looking forward to it, and, and all I can say is try and see it on the bigger screen possible. Do you consider it, 2001 a realistic space film, then? Yeah, yeah, certainly it's portrayal of... With the technology, uh, of space, of, technology yeah. as perceived at the time, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a superb space movie. You, watch the, I mean, it's the only film I'm aware of, apart from Gravity, where there's no sound in space, <laughs> which is obviously realistic. Not necessarily interesting, but realistic. Uh, well, the fact that it's got me considering going to the cinema is a step up, Steve. Uh, You've from, got an IMAX from screen there, you And think? I've got an IMAX just yeah, 15, definitely go and see it IMAX, 15 yeah. minutes away. Um, the the only thing putting me off at the minute is the cost of going to see it. Why don't you a ticket to go and see it? Uh, I think it's it's not four. the cost of the ticket, it's that Phil's car does six miles to the Two full tanks of fuel <laughs> to get there and back. Probably. Uh, it's about 14 quid a ticket to go in. Before the cinema last night, when I was watching Nightcrawler, it had an, a trailer for IMAX coming to Cheltenham. So, why are you telling us that? We're in Swindon. <laughs> That's really you might want to travel. <laughs> Cheltenham, just see an IMAX screen. Yeah, I'm fortunate that I do have these facilities close by, Steve, but at the same time, it's not cheap, you know, mm. to go and see stuff like that. And, and me being Scottish and all the rest of it, you know. <laughs> oh, well, you claim to be Scottish, but you were born in England. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, one of us. The plot thickens. Right, I think it's time for games news now. Defence segue. I like that. Cue the 10 second silence as Mark turns his microphone on and works out what the hell he was going to (laughs) say. I'll play an ident now. Right, ident out of the way. Um, Right, Mark, what have you come up with for games news? Said with enthusiasm. Um... (laughs) Satoru Iwata, uh, Nintendo president, had a Q&A with investors. Um, it was translated by someone at NeoGAF. Um, and basically, it was a non-committal answer about region locking. But it has people quite, well, mildly excited simply because it, it at least raises the prospect that Nintendo might look at a region-free console at some point in the future. You know, it, it might be seen as a non-answer, but it's not a no so, you know, that's, in Nintendo speak, that's a positive. But the fact that it was even, shall we say, something that he would speak about in any kind of length at least shows that it's it's on the table, so to speak. Um, you know, he, he mentioned problems with long localization periods. And, and, you know, traditionally, Nintendo haven't been great um, with localizations. Kind of, you know, you can go all the way back to the kind of PAL in NTSC problems. Um, and various games that just have never shipped to other markets that the people people have been really wanting to play and and you know half the battle in games is is getting people interested in your product and Nintendo a lot of the time have had things on consoles that have just never shipped um, so yeah he spoke about different regions and possible issues with specific license content so you know if it's something in one region then you can't necessarily just easily make a localized version um, but 
he did say that region region locking was more it, it existed more for sellers than for consumers, which which shows a kind of softening on the issue. On on, on semi Nintendo related news, it popped up on my Twitter feed earlier. Have you seen this bug in uh, Super Smash Bros or Brothers or however it's supposed to be pronounced, um, where certain behaviour for reasons not fully understood is uh, lent, getting people bans of one hundred and thirty six years, <laughs> <laughs> which. Yeah, it seems, seems kind of harsh to me. It's harsh, you know, but then again, this is Nintendo. This, at least, should we say, back on region locking, it's it's a sign that, should we say, they might be looking to modernise. I mean, there have been lots of criticisms about not tying content to, to consoles. You know, people want a single account so that they can move between hardware if they want, you know, to upgrade or change if something breaks and not have to kind of go to Nintendo to plead to get different content just transferred to a new console. But, I mean, Nintendo were always a company that didn't have region locks. The original Game Boy didn't. Um, they brought it in with a DSi and, and then for some titles, then properly with a 3DS. But it, it's perhaps a sign that they either they're looking to modernise or that, should we say, they're, they're desperate enough to say, you know, kind of open the floodgates and sell to all regions because, you know, thus far there have been precious few titles that you can really see are going to make such a huge huge problem for publishers and the like with regards um importation um you you had with certain things reverse importation so people in japan actually waiting for a game to come out in the states to import um so there was a region lock lock put on a particular ps3 game for that but generally it's just it's seen as something that's quite antiquated um so if, if nintendo are starting to thaw a little on the subject and are willing to to look to modernise. Then perhaps it's perhaps it's good news for consumers. It would be good news for Nintendo because Nintendo's market has kind of shrunk significantly. Um, you know, people have kind of migrated away. You know, the to use oh, you're playing a Nintendo as a kind of synonym just for a video games console. That's died. You know, PlayStation has has kind of replaced that in, in the kind of common vocabulary. But there's still a huge market there for for Nintendo fans. It's just the fact that they're spread out across the globe. So they're they're third in kind of so many different regions and they're kind of, you know, fighting for second place and they're never the the kind of dominant force they once were. But if if you consider the type of games that they actually make, you could argue that they're, they're perhaps the only console manufacturer making their own games that are actually global games. You know, the, the thing that appeals to someone in Japan is the thing that appeals to someone in America and it appeals to someone in Europe. Whereas, you know, in the West, we've got particular genres that just do nothing in Japan. And in Japan, they've got various kind of genres that, you know, we would never want to see, you know, kind of dating sims and the like, just have no audience in, really in the West. So, you know, they are pretty universal. You know, a Mario title is still big, this kind of stuff. But they take time to get out certain localizations. They they just kind of drag their heels with with modernizing, and it's just left a lot of fans slightly, you know, pulling their hair out. They're not fully sure whether to commit to another Nintendo console. So if they did release something again, and the fact that this is even on the table surely says that they're already considering what the next console is. I mean, once you've shipped one, you're already thinking about what goes into the next one. So if this is something that they that they are kind of kicking around, then then. Yeah, it's good news. Good news all round. Yay, Nintendo. That's my little pep rally. Right. Is that the game's news? Yeah, I think that is.
No, Steve, what's it the cinema? Nightcrawler, which is was a movie written and directed by Dan Gilroy, um, who actually wrote the film Free Jack. Anyone remembers that <laughs> from a few years ago? But he's um, it's a bit of a family affair actually because his brother Tony Gilroy, best known for doing a lot of the Bourne movies, writing the Bourne movies, is producer on it. His twin brother John Gilroy is the uh, editor, and his wife Renee Russo is in the film as well. Um, but the, the film is dominated by Jake, Jake Gyllenhaal, who gives an absolutely stunning performance as the lead character Lewis Bloom, who's Essentially, a, a kind of uh, amoral, sociopathic self-starter, who you know, who, who, who discovers that, that um, news channels will pay good money for footage of you know accidents and murders and this sort of stuff, and starts going around uh, LA at night with a camera, basically getting footage to sell. And the film is, too, is, is both a character study of, of this character, who's a, uh, repulsive and yet at the same time fascinating and brilliantly played by Gillian Hall, who's who's just just mesmerising in in a in a creepy way throughout the entire film. Um, but at the same time, it's also a searing indictment on modern news media, you know, and their desperate attempt to try and win ratings through showing more and more graphic and unpleasant footage, and and also the way that it's slightly racist in its approach. You know, if it's a black youth murdered, no one cares, but you know, if it's a white family murdered in their house, something that's that's the leading story, um, and. It's it's not just a, a character study and, and and an indictment of modern media, but also um, you know it's also blackly funny in places and quite exciting. There's, there's actually some very exciting scenes in it too. I wouldn't exactly call it a thriller, but it, there is quite a lot of excitement in it. Uh, and um, yeah, the film basically sort of follows Gillen Howes. He both uh, creates a, um, a a career for himself and a, a name for himself, working with this particular um, news channel, and specifically um, with uh, Rene Russo, whose character is the, sort of the, the head of the news news department in this channel, and and, and Turner's her relationship with him, which I think becomes a bit of a Faustian pact. Really, she begins to realise that she's got more than she bargained for with this guy. Um, he brings in a, a, an assistant to help him, um, 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 who is Riz Ahmed, who played uh, one of the lead guys in Four Lions. He's an English actor, actually, but uh, he doesn't actually spot on American accent. He's very good in it as well, kind of playing a sort of very sympathetic character who's, to a certain extent, the audience's view of um, view view of what's going on. Uh, the, almost the entire film takes place at night. It's beautifully shot, as you've got to say, very well done. Night, nighttime photography. The whole film's got that kind of sodium-like glow to it that it makes you feel slightly sick, um, and it kind of perfectly ties in with Lewis Bloom's world, where he's up all day researching on the internet, and, and he's very wired. And, and, and I think Gyllenhaal lost about twenty pounds something for the part, so he's got this stringy, wired, very gaunt look to him. But he's up all night um, um, getting this footage and. Um, yeah, they, they capture the sort of nighttime Los Angeles and the seedy side of Los Angeles very well in the film. Um, and uh, yeah, I thought, it was, I thought it was a superb film, actually. I, I thought, it was, yeah, I, whether I'd call it enjoyable so much as, as interesting is probably more to the point. It's interesting, it's well made, it's got a great central performance, but a good supporting cast as well. Uh, it's got some very um, sort of salient points to make about modern life. Uh, and, and the nature of our modern media particularly um, it's funny in places it's exciting in places um, and it's just interesting it's, it's nice to see a film you know it's one of those films where you say the lead character you know you don't like the lead character but you're still interested in, in watching what he does and, and um, you're still invested in the movie um, and I thought it was a very good film one of the better films I've seen this year in fact and I give it 8 out of 10 solid word well, it's good to see uh, I don't know it, it's an, I, I like the idea I mean obviously I've got as much chance of going to the cinema uh, <laughs> as I do, you know, being being picked for the next uh, Olympic athletics team. But um, I like the idea of Gyllenhaal actually, you know, embracing the fact that on occasions he's just weird and actually playing against, you know, some of his type and actually doing something a bit more, um, 
bit more, you know, off, a bit more unconventional. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen, there's a, a French electronic band uh, called The Shoes. And he does, he, well, that's what they're called. Just live with it. Um, and they, he features in one of their videos for a track called um, Time to Dance. And he, yeah, it's a sort of, he does a sort of um, Christian Bale-esque psychotic turn. He just runs around hipsters. It's actually a very good video. I've uh, he, he's recording this. Genuinely <laughs> creepy hipsters. at times in it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's good to see him em- embracing that. Um, yeah, no, he, he, he is genuinely unnerving in this film uh, and very, very creepy. Um, and it works brilliantly in terms of the character. Um, yeah, you're, you're, after you leave the cinema, you'll, you won't be able to forget these his staring, burning eyes. Um, and it's also, it's interesting, it's not when he loses his temporary rants and rays in the film that he's frightening, it's when he's completely controlled and, uh, and you know, brutally honest. And, and it's, yeah, it's, I thought it was a really, really powerful film. And, and I would not be surprised if Howe doesn't get uh, an Oscar nod for this because he really is that good in it. Good stuff. Uh, right, so let's move on to Blu-rays released next week, Steve. Next week, it's the X-Men, Days of Futures Past, which is Brian Singer's return to the X-Men fold with a sequel that basically tries to combine the uh, first-class X-Men and the you know, the original X-Men from the movies um, in the mid to late 90s and uh, joins them together, basically, in a film that involves a time travel plot so you can get both uh, sets of uh, actors involved, plus also, to a large extent, rewrite and ignore the third X-Men movie, X-Men Last Stand, um, and is largely successful. I saw it at the cinema. I, I enjoyed it. Um, as, as is often the case with these films, it's very heavy on Hugh Jackman and, and Wolverine. But, uh, uh, you know, it's it's well, well well sort of choreographed and orchestrated by Brian Singer. He, he, he certainly, you know, I think X-Men 2 is, is one of the best superhero movies made. And um, he did a great job there. And here, here again, he has a pretty good job of basically trying to tie up an awful lot of loose ends. Um, and, and and continuity errors that have been created by the previous X-Men movies. Um, he's got a great cast to work with. Um, and uh, and I, yeah, the effects are excellent and, and the plot's pretty good. And I, I enjoyed it. And it largely works. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it, it is very good and worth seeing if you haven't seen it. It was shot natively in 3D. So if you, want, if, you know, if you can watch 3D movies or you've got a 3D TV or projector, then I'd recommend getting a 3D disc rather than a 2D disc because it's worth buying. Uh, and yeah, good movie. Very good movie. And the other film coming out, is Jersey Boys, which is Clint Eastwood's film version of the musical stage play. Um, and I saw that at the cinema in the summer and enjoyed it to a degree. Uh, it's about Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. And um, unfortunately, I think it, clearly Eastwood was more interested in the story of, of Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons in terms of their relationship with the mob and, and that kind of thing and less interested in the actual music. So um, I think anyone who's probably going to see it having seen the stage play, the musical will be disappointed because it, it doesn't really play as a sort of full on musical. It's much more of a, a film about a band and therefore the music is within the context of the film. You know, it's them on stage or them in the recording studio. Uh, and it's also full of quite a lot of strong language. So I don't know whether that'll play well with some of the people that might be coming from the theatre. But but I mean, it's, it's not, I don't think it's complete. I think I would have liked to have seen either a proper full on musical or a more of a serious movie about, about Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons in terms of their relationship with the mob. But uh, if you like the, the musical and you like the band you'll probably enjoy it um it was it was okay the cast are pretty good cool so that's a blu-rays uh, released next week still no theodore rex uh, you know this has been like 62 episodes now and still not coming out in blu-ray no yes. uh, no and by the way i think we mentioned it three weeks ago but i'm still waiting for my copy of with now and i as well which was supposed to come out ages ago my box set 
are you saying the- Theodore Rex it? and with Neil and I are are in parity here? They're- no, not really. <laughs> Well, no, because you haven't seen Theodore Rex. You have no idea what what lies in store. Makes it much more exciting. Wait for 4K. (laughs) No point cannibalising their own sales. Yeah, that dinosaur suit's going to really hold up, isn't it? Uh, Right, so to wrap up, we were talking about, you know, vinyl. Should we go back to vinyl? Um, Is is there a... A, really a market for that and and obviously when we're talking about film and especially the cinema uh, we've moved into the digital age of uh, of digital projectors and so on but it seems to be Steve that certainly for filmmakers um, you know you're looking at the likes of episode 7 Star Wars um, you're looking at the the likes of um, the one that we're talking about earlier on Interstellar um, 70 mil, 35 mil still being used, IMAX still being used, a lot of film in there. Are, are we seeing, certainly with filmmakers, are we seeing them go back to film now? Are we seeing it's definitely this? a trend. Um, certainly it's, it's a trend that's been largely um, orchestrated and championed by Christopher Nolan, who is, you know, is, is a self-confessed fan of 35mm. And in fact, he um, quite recently, Phil, you'd have seen this, I think it was Kodak, we're going to stop making 35mm film stock. Yeah, uh, and Nolan, along with some of the studios and other directors, got together Scorsese and among them um, to basically say, you know, convince them to not do that, to keep making thirty-five millimeter film stock, so they could still use it for film production. You know, so we were getting very close to, to the point where film was going to completely die out as a capture medium. Um, thankfully, it hasn't. He still, so Chris Nolan still uses thirty-five mil, shoots on thirty-five mil, and shoots on IMAX seventy millimeter, basically. Um, he's also, I mean, in the same way, he's, he's kind of influenced J.J. Uh, Abrams, who shot on 35mm for, say, say, Star Trek Into Darkness, and shot some IMAX sequences, and he's doing exactly the same thing again for Star Wars Episode 7. He's shooting on 35mm, which is really good news, I think. Uh, Wally Fister, who was obviously Christopher Nolan's DP before he made Transcendence. Transcendence is um, also shot on 35mm. And Michael Bay, um, not to say the best advocate of... Uh, Filmmaking, but uh, he also has been using 35mm uh, and uh, shooting IMAX sequences. So there's definitely a trend for moving back to, to film, uh, film stock. And now, you know, now that's different from projection necessarily. Well, I think, no question in my mind, digital projection is a great thing because I can remember the days when you'd get a crappy 35mm print that's been around America five times before it got to, to England and it was scratched and filthy uh, and awful. Now you go to the cinema, every time you see the film, it's a pristine digital projection and, you, and so you don't have to worry about that kind of thing but there's a lot to be said for capturing you know the, the images 135 mil because it is is a very different look to digital i mean they, they, they spend most of their time now trying to make digital look like film because film has that very unique look to it and it's interesting that um efforts to, to do something that's not film like so for example higher frame rate with the hobbit you know that was a big hoo ha when it when the first Hobbit film came out. Yep. The last Hobbit film's coming out in a, in a month's time or a month and a half, uh, and I don't think anyone's talking about so, HFR so that's, now. So that's three years that that it's been possible to shoot in F- mm-hmm. uh, HFR, uh, and for cinemas to show stuff back at higher frame rate, mm-hmm. and only the Hobbit films exist. That says everything you need to know. Yeah, and obviously they were all shot back to back three years ago anyway, so no one has touched it since. Um, and in fact, even the Hobbit films, you know, they're not making a big deal about last year, certainly when the Tessellation of Smile came out. You know, you could go and see it in HFR, but you had to really look for it. Basically, most cinemas were not showing in HFR. They were showing it in, um, in normal 3D, you know, 24 frames a second. And X-Men Days of Futures Past was apparently shot at H. It was actually shot 
48 frames a second. But when that news broke, Fox went out of the way to say, yes, but it's not being released that way. <laughs> so, uh, so, so clearly the studios, you know, the, the, the massive backlash that The Hobbit got, quite deservedly, I think, because it looked f***ing awful, has basically, I think, scared off a lot of filmmakers. I think most filmmakers don't want to do it anyway. I think, I think no, I don't like the look of film. But the studios also didn't want to you know, incur that kind of backlash either. So hopefully that's the last we'll see of that for some time. Uh, Although it, Cameron is talking about shooting Avatar 2, 3 and 4 at a higher frame rate, isn't he? He's talking about it, but it is interesting that you know if you look at film fans and the film enthusiasts and basically the film industry, uh, they want to stay at twenty four frames a second. They don't want higher frame rate. Then you look at the games industry, and I think the biggest thing at the minute, Mark, with games is that that everybody wants higher frame rate. People want a higher frame rate. People want a, a stable frame rate more than anything. I think, um, yeah, it, but that's that's because it's an interactive medium people kind of particularly with fighting games you want to be able to feel like you're reacting within a split second with a passive medium like film that shouldn't really matter at all then then that's all about kind of the aesthetics of it yeah totally and i just wanted to make that point clear because i know a lot of people get the two mixed up um so steve uh is there a future for film do you think or is it just going to be used as a capture or is there money to be made in certain cinemas holding on to and preserving their 70mm projectors and so on for the occasional big film like Interstellar, which could be struck, a print could be struck and, and shown. Well, um, they, they, you know, there's certainly, there aren't that many cinemas, I, I think, that have 70mm projectors left, unfortunately. Um, if you've ever had the opportunity to see 70mm, it is stunning. I mean, films yep. that were shot in 75mm. Yep. I think um, The Master, <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson's last film, was shot in 70 mil that was the first film since uh kenneth branagh made uh hamlet in 70 mil uh um, about 15 years ago so it's not news very often but imax effectively is the same thing it's a very large f- f- um film format no that's proper and, imax let's let's make that very yeah, clear yeah. we need to differentiate between films that are shot digitally and then projected in an imax screen and films that are actually shot in imax so when we're talking about interstellar or star trek or star wars or um the dark knight they, there were sequences in those films that were shot with IMAX cameras using large film format. Um, and yeah, if you can get to see those projected that way, it is quite, you know, genuinely immersive. I mean, the, the screen is high and what fills your entire field of view. Um, and, and the idea being that you've watched a film and then these sequences will come in and they will completely immerse you in the film. I mean, I, I find that actually, that approach a little bit gimmicky myself. Going from one aspect ratio to another for certain sequences it seems a bit gimmicky. Um, although it worked very effectively in uh, in Mission Impossible uh, Ghost Protocol, when when he's hanging on the outside of the Burj Khalifa, I mean, it gave you a genuine sense of uh, of, of um, vertigo um, because you know you, you, it was filling your entire field of view. But I think there's still room for digital um, um, capture. Sorry, not digital. Still room for um, 35 millimeter capture. I think less so for 35 millimeter or 70 millimeter projection, unfortunately. But ultimately, I, I mean, it, it's losing battle isn't it i think that ultimately we will end up in an all digital world eventually i mean we're only talking about a few filmmakers here that are sort of fighting a rearguard action you know nolan spielberg still shoots on film but you know um, um tarantino still shoots oh actually tarantino announced his next film um the hateful eight uh will be shot in 70 mil so there you go he's actually shooting the whole film in 70 millimeter which is very unusual 
Um, but I, I think uh, th- those are sort of people just trying to be different. Uh, and the, the majority of filmmakers now, for cost reasons as much as anything else, are shooting digital. Although, you know, it's still surprised. I mean, I'm, I was surprised when I was interviewing the director of photography on of, of Captain Phillips that that film was, was shot entirely on film. It was shot on 35mm and the sequences with the, on the boats when they're attacking the ship, um, the pirates, that was shot on 16mm. Um, so there's still people out there using film. Um, and that's good news as far as I'm concerned, but I suspect ultimately you know, it's only a matter of time, isn't it? Yeah, it has to be. Ed? Uh, it's one that uh, I don't. I, I I confess I don't know enough about cinema projection to 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 know this outright, and I'd be interested in, in feedback on this. Surely, if the effect of shooting on film can be largely effectively reproduced by then replaying it, actually then replaying it in cinemas digitally. The, obviously, I, I appreciate the nostalgia, and I appreciate that seventy mil is a different game again. But if you can get most of the effect by shooting on film and then replaying through the normal channels, then it's easier to ensure that degree of survivability than it is to try and stay on film from start to finish, which, as Steve points out, is a much more challenging proposition and they would never can, do it. and can be bloody awful as well. Yeah, yeah it, it, they, they would never do it. They, they will do, and I think we need to look at, uh, at bodies like the BFI, um, and you know bodies like that in the US as well, where they will save uh, if a print exists, they will save that, and they may strike um, a print for a special screening. Um, and I think that as film fans, that's the only hope that we have. I think um, to ever see seventy millimeter projected again. Um, and like Steve says, it, you know, it is just such an experience to see that, um, and and it's a shame that um, digitally we can't do that anymore. You know, you don't get the same effect. So you've got hope that, that bodies like the BFI will hang on to um, certainly some projectors and keep them in working order, like, you know, a lot of these societies keep Spitfires in working order so they can be flown again and that kind of thing. You'd hope that that, that is the case and that every now and again we will get to see, um, or you can go to a special screen where you can go and see 70mm um, or even 35mm. Mm. Well, it's worth remembering that when it comes to film preservation and... Um, you know, long-term storage of film. It is done on film. It's not done. Even digital films will be scanned to thirty-five mil. Yeah, I mean, um, the, the, for, the for whole, preservation. The whole thing there was that Toy Story. That was the perfect example, wasn't it? I mean, mm. they they had made that on a system using a file system that no longer existed, and mm. they had to go back and try and un- unlock all these files, the original files for the Toy Story uh, films which were on formats that no longer existed. Um, yeah. And that's, that's the danger with digital. Yeah, people don't, uh, don't use digital for long-term, long-term you know, preservation and storage of films. It's, it's much more sensible to use something physical like film that doesn't decay as long as it's stored correctly, um, uh, you know, uh, rather than a digital you know, a drive that may not might freeze, might break, might not be able to access it. You, know, you just don't know in the future. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it, I mean, and obviously... We talk a lot about things like 4K, you know, and we've mentioned in the past the possibility of 8K at some point in the future. Well, 8K, that is the same kind of resolution as 70 mil. So, um, you know, there is a chance that we, we will one day experience that kind of impact again with with a, not film, obviously, but with 8, 8K caption. Then we could have 8, 8K projection of old 70, you know, a 70 millimeter print scanned at 8K, which is what they will they do. So things like um, Lawrence of Arabia, that was scanned at 8K when it was doing its restoration. You know, and, and so there is going to be an 8K print there available, maybe for one day for us to see. 
in projection that way. And I'd, I'd love to see uh, something like Lawrence of the Way projected in its native, because uh, it was shot on 65mm film. So, you know, the, I mean, I saw, I did see it at the cinema, actually, when it had a reissue back in the mid to late 80s. I, I don't think it was 17mm, though. I think I saw it at 35mm print. But um, that was still a, a, a wonderful experience. But to see it in, in 65mm or 70mm, depending on how you look at it, would be a real experience. Sort of on a wider level, doesn't it? This comes back to just how we're now looking for different things for different aspects of, of of our media. I mean, let's face it, with sport, you want the highest resolution, fastest frame rate. You, you just want to go, you know, to the eye-bleeding maximum of technology available at any given moment. But for a cinematic experience, that's not the same thing. So whereas it always used to be that, you know, it was just, just automatically went with the notional highest spec best option available it's it's now just just choosing for given different purposes where where you want to step off i mean i in the same way that um you know certain certain tv um series i don't necessarily think that they'd benefit from being shot like the hobbit any any more than the hobbit did no i mean i think if you look at um look at the history of cinema you know, it, it's often me other factors that have driven it. So the whole move to widescreen and, and and stereo sound and surround sound was driven by TV's popularity. You know, they were trying to do things in the cinema that you just couldn't do on a little television screen in your lounge. And I think that's what's happening to a certain extent now. Home cinema and TV, you know, has moved to a point where you're getting, you know, larger screen sizes, a higher resolution, 3D, uh, you know, surround sound systems in the home. So in the cinema, you're trying to compete with that you need to make the bigger experience so you know you're talking 70 mil imax um th- you know 3d um dolby atmos aura whatever it is it's, it's trying to make the cinema more of an event again to compete with co- you know home entertainment competition and uh, i guess you know i'm all for making going to the cinema more of an event because uh, i'm a film fan and I, and I love the whole idea of projection and cinema and big screens uh, and um you know that's why i'm quite looking forward to seeing instead of one for one reason is because I think that what Christopher Lennon is trying to do here is, you know, is create an event movie, a, a real big experience. Uh, and I don't, I, unfortunately that doesn't happen that much these days. Uh, and so, you know, I, I applaud him for at least trying, even if he doesn't succeed, at least he's trying. Well, Solid. Steve, I think it's time to go and have a scone and some lighter fluid. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's about it for the AV phones podcast this week. Um, if you've got any thoughts on, uh, the way the film industry is going, um, certain filmmakers staying with film or the whole industry going digital, uh, leave them in the podcast forum underneath this podcast. Um, likewise, remember the competitions are there to win and um, I need to thank Steve Withers. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Mark Potray. I haven't had real butter since I was a little girl. And Ed Selly. Alone, the symbol is meaningless, but with enough people, blowing up a building can change the world. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Bookmark avforums.com for latest reviews, news and video. And you can also leave us a rating on iTunes. I'm Phil Hinton. Thanks very much for listening. And we'll see you again next Wednesday. (laughs) 